Like Julie said, we are starting a new sermon series today. It's a four-week series through the Old Testament book of Jonah. It's a short book, and it's one of my favorite books in all the Bible. Now, it's my favorite not because it's short, but it does only take like 10 minutes for you to read it from beginning to end. If you don't have one of our Jonah workbook devotionals, pick one up at the welcome table when you leave. Just open it up tomorrow and start in and you'll be ready for next week's uh, sermon. Uh, The events that Jonah describes took place in the 8th century BC. So they took place thousands and thousands of years ago. But Jonah speaks to the human heart better than anything I think that is being written today. I believe God wants to say something to all of us through this book. Would you join me and just ask God to teach you? Just bow your head for just a moment and say, God, we're open. What do you want to say to me, God? Why did you bring me here today, God? What do you want me to learn from your word, God? God, I pray that you would open your word that we might be able to see the truth in it. And you would open our heart so that we would receive the word. It would change us and transform us into the people that you want us to be. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so here we go. Diving into the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Now, now this is an insane start to the book, but you may not get it, right? You might think, well, it just sounds normal like every book starts, or it sounds a little humdrum or slow. No, 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 not at all. You see, Jonah is the only prophet that God ever called to leave Jerusalem and go to a foreign country to preach to him. And it's not just any country. He's sending him to Assyria, Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian Empire was absolutely brutal. I mean, they were bad people. They would have thought of ISIS as soft. Uh, here is a statue of the king at the time. His name's Shelemnezazar or something like that. I can't quite say it, but he's the third, so there are two before him. But anyway, under his leadership, Assyria was known for torturing captives, for dismembering them, for decapitating them. One ancient Near East historian said that there was no more gory and blood-curdling empire than the Assyrian Empire. After they would capture people, they would often cut off both legs and one arm. They saved one arm so that they could shake hands mockingly as the person died. They would cut people's heads off and make their friends and family carry their heads on a stick through the streets. They would pull out people's tongues. They would skin people alive and then take that skins and hang them on the, on the walls of their city. And the people that they didn't violently kill, they forced into slavery. This is a violent empire. And Assyria loved to pick on its neighbors. Because they were the one with the most uh, uh, biggest military, they picked on the countries around them that weren't as strong. And one of those countries was Israel. So eventually Assyria will come in and invade and defeat Israel, but for a long time they just enjoyed terrorizing them. 
So if you grew up in Israel, you had a lot of reasons to hate the Assyrians. Verse three. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. You ever say, if I knew what God wanted me to do, I'd do it, right? I, I'm not sure what God wants me to do. It's confusing, it's fuzzy, it's gray. So like, if I knew what God wanted though, I'd for sure do it. Maybe not, right? Because I think Jonah would have said that he would have done whatever God wanted him to do until God called him to do something that he didn't want to do. And then Jonah refused to do it. See, Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. He didn't want to warn the Ninevites about the impending judgment. He, he didn't see any reason to go tell them that God was going to judge their city. And because Jonah couldn't see a reason, he concluded that there was no good reason. Let that sink in for just a second. Because Jonah couldn't see the reason, he concluded that God didn't have a good reason. What Jonah did is he put himself over God. What Jonah did is he said, look, God, thank you for your opinion, but I know better. I'm wiser. I, I, I'm more loving. I'm more just than you, God. See, every time God calls us to do something and we refuse to do it, what we're doing is what Jonah did. We're looking at God and saying, God, you're wrong. You're wrong. It's what C.S. Lewis calls putting God in the dock. The dock is part of the British courtroom, and it was where the defendant, where the accused would sit. And so, so Lewis says that, that people kind of instinctively, intuitively knew that we as humanity are in the dock. We're the accused. We're the defendant. And God is the judge. But Lewis says that modern people, contemporary people, have reversed places with God. We've placed God in the dock and ourselves as the judge. And so what that means is, is that we ask God questions to see if his answers, you know, measure up to us, if they're good enough for us. So sometimes when we call God out on the carpet to, to ask him questions, sometimes those are about big picture things, like why is there evil in the world? Why did an earthquake hit Turkey and Syria that kills thousands and thousands of people? Why are there war atrocities in Ukraine and, and Russia? Why is Tyree Nichols killed on the street of Memphis by police officers? God, this doesn't make sense to me. Do you have a good reason for that, God? We demand God answers us because we're his judge. But sometimes, maybe most of the time, our questions are more personal. God, why do I have to forgive this person who hurt me deeply? It doesn't make sense to me. God, why do I need to be generous with my time and money? God, what's your reason for saying that I should confess my sins to fellow Christians who will pray for me? God, do you have a good reason to say that sex is only inside of marriage or that I should only date Christians? God, give me answers. You owe me answers. See, when God calls us to do something, sometimes he gives us a reason. Like sometimes when God gives us a command, he tells us what to do, and he also tells us the why behind it. But a lot of times he doesn't. A, a lot of times we don't know the reason, we don't know the why. And the question then for us is, am I willing to obey God when I don't know the reason why? 
Or am I willing to obey God when I don't agree with the reason why? Am I willing to submit to what God says even when I think he's wrong? Those are hard questions, right? I mean, if you don't agree with God, are you willing to obey him? Or do you put yourself above him? Are you the judge or is God? See, if, if you won't obey God when it doesn't make sense to you, then what you've become is your own God. Because now you determine what's right, what's right and wrong. You call the shots. It's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. Go all the way back to the book of Genesis. And Adam and Eve are placed in a garden and they're told you can eat from any tree of this. Eat the fruit of any tree except this one, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You can't eat from that one. But God doesn't tell them why. So Adam and Eve, they look at the tree and they go, I don't know, it looks good. It looks like fruit would be good. It looked good, it was pleasing to the eye, it, it was desirable. And so they said, well, we're just going to do it. Because God didn't give us a reason, we're just going to assume there isn't a good reason, and therefore we're going to put ourselves above God and do what we want to do, because what God said to do doesn't make sense to us. Proverbs fourteen twelve. I, I think it's a scary verse, but let me read it and then explain why. There is a way that seems right to a person, but eventually it ends in death. See, the reason I think it's scary is is because to this person it's describing, which is probably you and me, right? It seems right to us. It makes sense to us. From our perspective, it's logical. But because it contradicts God's word, because because it contradicts God's design, it ends in death. No, look, if it didn't make sense to us, then it would seem obvious we shouldn't do it. But there is a way that seems right to us, but it goes against God, and therefore it ends in death. See, Jonah didn't have a reason. He, 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 it seemed right to him that he shouldn't go to Nineveh. So he didn't. He, he ran from God. Are there any areas of your life that you don't want to obey God in? Any areas of your life that doesn't seem like God has a good reason. Any areas of your life that you're on the run from God? When Jonah ran from God, he, he uh, was supposed to go to, to Nineveh. He was in Jerusalem. He was supposed to go to Nineveh. Instead, he goes to Tarshish, which is on the opposite side of the world. Here's a map that kind of explains it. So just to be clear, Jonah's here in Jerusalem. He's supposed to go up to Nineveh, which is modern-day Iraq. Instead, he goes down to Joppa, gets on a boat, and heads to Tarshish. I mean, this isn't close, right? He didn't get confused at the best message. He's running as far away from God as he can get. What about you? Can you identify with that? I mean, what's your Tarshish? How do you try to escape God? There's so many ways. Alcohol, gaming, porn, scrolling social media, binge-watching Netflix, over-exercise, overwork. Hobbies like golf that you just become obsessed with. It's a way to escape, a way to get away. How are you trying to escape God? What's your go-to? Shopping? What is it? What good thing have you made into a God that now you're trying to use to avoid doing business with the one true God? Here's the crazy thing. Is that some scholars, not all, but some scholars say that Tarshish is more of a metaphor. It's not a real place. So it's possible that Jonah is setting out for a place that doesn't even exist. And if that's the case, it sounds like us. 
Because we're looking for a certain kind of life, but apart from God, that life doesn't exist. Like Tarshish may not be real, but there are a lot of ships sailing for it. And a life that we want, a life of peace and joy and happiness and contentment and meaning and purpose, it doesn't exist apart from God. And yet there are a lot of people who are searching for it. So Psalms uh, chapter 4 verse 2 asks us a question. How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Like how long? Are you going to spend another year, another decade, another day continuing to believe delusions, continuing to believe lies? Like maybe the lie that you know better than God or that God has to give an answer to you, like God reports to you in some way. Or maybe it's a lie that, that if you could rearrange the circumstances in your life, your life will finally be what you want. Or that success breeds happiness. Or that you should be true to yourself. What, what kind of lies do you believe? And how long will you believe them? How long will you take things that God meant for your good and turn them into God's? See, Psalm 16:4 puts it this way. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. When we take the good things that God's given us and, 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 and turn them into gods that we think will bring meaning and happiness and purpose and joy in our life, what we really do is end up bringing more and more suffering. If you came here this morning and thought, I'd like to suffer more. Well, here's how you do it. What you do is you try to find life apart from God. You try to find it in his gifts instead of in the giver of the gifts. Jonah experienced this. Verse four. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. So God sends a storm to wake up Jonah, right? God loves Jonah so much that he sends a storm to wake him up. God is chasing Jonah. Because of his grace and his love and his mercy, he's chasing Jonah down and he's saying, Jonah, you're not gonna be able to find life apart from me. He's trying to wake Jonah up so he doesn't keep going down the same path of sinful rebellion that he's currently on. See, here's the thing. Sin always damages. Sin always destroys. It always has devastating consequences. Now, it's not that every hardship or problem in our life is because of some sin. But every sin does produce hardship and problems in our life. And when I find myself a little too casual about sin, a little too flippant, a little too, it's not that big of a deal, I, I think of this. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. When I read that years ago, it stuck in my head because it's so true. Sin takes you farther than you want to go, it, it, it keeps you longer than you want to stay and it costs you more than you want to pay. Sin always damages and destroys. It's something you don't play with. Verse five. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone down below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. So if you're tracking, Jonah was supposed to go up to Nineveh. Instead, he went down to Joppa, got on a ship, went down below deck to fall into a deep sleep. Hey, this isn't a nap, right? I mean, how do you take a nap in the middle of a life-threatening storm? No, one pastor called this the sleep of sorrow. This is Jonah continuing to try to escape. 
He's run from God. Now he's trying to escape from God by, 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 by ignoring God. He is exhausted. The reason he is sleeping in the middle of a life-threatening storm is he is emotionally, spiritually, physically exhausted from all the anger and all the grief and all the guilt and all the anxiety. Verse six. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. One thing you keep seeing in this book over and over and over is that the pagans look a lot better than the prophet, right? The pagans act better than the prophet. They're praying, he's not. They're throwing cargo overboard, trying to save lives. He doesn't care about their life or his life or anybody's life. So finally, now here's the captain trying to shake him up from this sleep of of sorrow, saying, look, wake up and pray to your God uh, that we will not perish. But you know, he didn't care. He didn't care about the we. He didn't care about those sailors that are in the boat with him. Not at all. Jonah didn't care about the common good. But see, here's the deal. Is that, 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 that he and the sailors are all in the same boat. And it's true for us. If you're a Christian or an atheist, if you're from some other faith or no faith at all, we're all in the same boat. We all live in the same community. If crime goes up, that affects all of us. If there aren't good jobs or good schools, that affects every single one of us. Every one of us is affected because we all are in the same boat. We all live in the same community. But some Christians, and, and these are Jesus-loving, Bible-believing, uh, uh, better Christians than me, friends of mine. They say, look, there's a lot of chaos in the world, a lot of problems, a lot of trouble, but we just need to focus on Jesus and focus on the spiritual things. That's what we should do. And, and, and again, they have a great heart in it, but I think they're wrong. I don't think that's what the Bible teaches us to do because I think that Jonah is being rebuked here because he doesn't care about the we. He doesn't care about everybody in the boat. You can't love God and ignore your neighbor. Here's how the prophet Jeremiah puts it. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. So they're in exile. They're outside of Jerusalem. They're in a pagan nation. And what's he telling them to do? Seek the peace and prosperity of that city. Pray to the Lord for it. That's the very thing that Jonah won't do. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So this is the prophet Jeremiah's way of saying, look, we're all in the same boat. If the city suffers, we all suffer. If the city prospers, we all prosper. That's why Christians have to be for the common good. We have to enter into the fray of all the problems to help bring about the common good because we can't love God and ignore your neighbor. And it's why Christians of all people should be the ones who are most for their community because God's called us to be for it. God loves everybody in the community. Okay, back to the story, verse seven. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell to Jonah. So in the ancient Near East, uh, lots were very common to use to discern God's will. They draw lots, it falls to Jonah. Okay, verse eight. So they asked him, tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us. What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? It's like a four-year-old, right? Just question after question. And, And notice this last question. This gets to race. What people are you from? It's the last question. Okay, let's, let's look at the next verse. He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. 
So the last question they asked is about race, but Jonah leads with it. He leads with his race. I'm not like you. I'm not one of you, right? Jonah identifies with his ethnicity and faith, faith before he identifies with God, right? Jonah is more invested in being a Hebrew than following Yahweh. What about you? How do you describe yourself? How do you think of yourself? Where's your primary identity? Is it in your race, your ethnicity, or in Jesus as a Christian? Are you a Christian who happens to be of a particular race? What about your country? Are are you more of an American or more of a Christian? Are you a Christian who, for most of us, happen to be American citizens? Or are you defined more by American values? I mean, the American dream is kind of runs counter to Jesus' dream, right? To the kingdom ethic of Jesus. The American dream is about upward mobility. And Jesus teaches downward mobility. We become servants. The, the American ethic is about individualism. Jesus says, no, we care about the community. The American ethic is to be true to yourself. And the Christian ethic is to surrender to God. Where's your identity? Is it in your race? your ethnicity, your country, your success, your career, your family? How do you answer that question, who am I? See, look at what Jonah does. He says, I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Do you, Jonah? Do you really? I don't know if you do or not. I know you think you do. But the longest distance in the world is the distance between our head and our heart. Jonah says he worships the Lord, the God of the heavens and dry land, while he's on the sea running from him. He says one thing and lives another. So what do you think Jonah's uh, uh, values are really lived out? In what he says or in how he lives? What about you? What do you say with your words that your life contradicts? I believe God is my number one priority in life. God first. Well, I don't know. Let's see your calendar and your bank statement. What do they say your number one value is? I believe the Bible is the word of God. But I don't really read it. But I believe it's true. But I don't follow it. I believe that, that God works all things together for good. But I'm consumed with worry. I believe that God is all wise. But in my life, I live as if my sexuality is mine to control, not God's. So are you starting to see that maybe there's some things you think you believe that you don't? Are you starting to see that maybe there's some areas of life that I know what God's calling me to, but I'm on the run from? Do you feel God kind of getting personal in your own heart, convicting you of something? Verse 11, the sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up, throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Okay, now think of Jonah's options at this point. He's admitted that uh, he's on the run from God, that the storm is his fault, and that if he weren't there, the storm would be gone. So what could he do? Well, here's what he could do. He could repent. Right? He could say, God, I screwed up. I'm an idiot. I want to go to Nineveh. I want to, 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 to obey you. I don't need a reason. I'm not the judge. You're the judge. I'm going to obey you. He could have done that. He didn't. Instead, he says, oh, just throw me overboard. Because here's what Jonah's saying. 
God, I would rather die than obey you. Here's what Jonah's saying. I, I, I'm doubling down on stupid. I would rather die than submit and surrender to God's authority in my life. That's a scary place to be. But we can get there pretty quickly, right? If we don't see the invitation, if we don't take God's invitation to, to turn, God's gracious invitation to turn from our sin and turn back to him, then we can get to that point. All right, so, so let's run it back. Let's run it back. Where are you in this story? Where are you in this story? Jonah's a prophet. He, he, I'm sure he feels close to God, right? But God challenges him and calls him to do something he didn't want to do. So because he doesn't think there's good reason to do it, he refuses. He says, no, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm over you, God. All right, so he's on the run from God. And what's God do? Does he give up on him? No. Out of grace, he chases Jonah down with a storm. <laughs> he can't outrun God. He chases him down with a storm. And now this is a chance for Jonah to go, okay, I want to repent. I need to get back on the right track. But does he? No. He goes down into a deep sleep, still trying to escape. He's, he's hiding. So the captain comes and shakes him and wakes him up. And now Jonah could say, you're right, you're right. I'm an idiot. I'm not obeying God. I, I, I'm increasing my suffering by chasing false gods. How long will I love these delusions and believe these lies? You're right. I want to repent and do what God wants me to do. Does he do that? No. No, 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 no. Well, then the sailors, then the sailors come and they draw lots. And now he's got another chance, another opportunity because the lots focused are, are, are forced Jonah's hand. So he could again repent, but does he? No. And says, so he said, throw me into the sea. I'd rather die. Because at this point, Jonah's heart has become so hard, so callous, he doesn't even care anymore. Where are you in that story? Has God called you to do something and you don't want to do it, it doesn't seem right to you, so you're not going to do it? Have you switched places with God so that you think God owes you explanations? Where are you in the story? Are you running from God? Has he, has he chased you down with a storm in your life to help you see reality the way it really is and turn to him? Has someone, like a sailor or a captain, some set of events, some person, some small group, some Bible study, some song, some sermon, shaken you and convicted you, and now you have a choice? Can I, do I want to repent? Do I want to turn? Do I want to ask for God's forgiveness? Do I want to run back to Jesus? Oh, where are you? Don't get to the point where you're so callous that you just say, well, I'm going to keep doubling down on stupid and, and ignoring God and running from God because pretty soon then you don't care and you're just saying, oh, throw me in the sea because I'd rather die than obey God. See, all Jonah has to do, all you have to do, all I have to do is when we're convicted of our sin, is just, just repent. Well, what's that mean? Well, there's a Hebrew word. It's hard to put it in English letters, but it's shuv. Uh, the B sounds like a V. And here's what it means to repent. It just means it expresses a radical change of mind towards sin. It implies a conscious moral separation from sin and a decision to forsake it and agree with God. God, I, I want to repent. I, I need to have a total change about sin. Sin's not something you play with. Sin brings suffering. Sin makes me pay a cost I don't want to pay. I, I just want to be away from it. I want to run to you, Jesus. I want to agree with God about my sin, but also about where the good life is found. God's knocking on your door. God's up in your business. And he's asking you, do you want to keep doubling down on stupid or do you want to repent? Let's pray. Would you just ask God if he would 
shine his spotlight of truth into your heart and ask him to reveal anything in your life you need to deal with. Tell God that you want to turn to him. Ask for grace to to let go of the sin and to hold on tightly to Jesus. Ask God for the grace to hate that sin because it pulls you away from Jesus. Jesus, I pray that you would have mercy upon us. Give us the grace to see our sin and to hate it and to run from it and to hold tightly to Jesus who is our forgiveness and our refuge and our strength and our shield and our joy and our hope and our peace and life everlasting. May we hold tightly to Jesus by your grace, never let go. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please stand and receive God's blessing. May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace as you believe the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks so much for being with us today. Have a great Sunday.